Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. On with the show. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was April 16, 1755. Elizabeth Louise Viget was born in Paris to Louis Viget and Jean Misson. From the time she was a young girl, Elizabeth took an interest in art. And by the time she was 15, she was making enough money from her art to support her family. Elizabeth's mother was a hairdresser, which meant she had some contact with aristocrats. Elizabeth's father was a pastel portraitist, and he trained her as an artist when she returned home from a convent she attended as a young girl. His artistry also gave the family access to the larger art world, and she was taught by other popular artists. In her memoirs, Elizabeth recounted how much art consumed her as a child, saying, I scrawled on everything at all seasons, my copybooks, and even those of my schoolmates had their margins crammed with tiny drawings of heads and profiles. But Elizabeth's father died when she was only 12 years old, and her passion for art waned for a little while. Within a year, her mother had married a jeweler, whom Elizabeth and her brother Etienne despised. Elizabeth's interest in art quickly returned, though, as painter Gabrielle Francois Doya, an old family friend, encouraged her to keep making art. And she went to museums and galleries with her mom, studying the masterpieces of renowned artists. She often visited the Louvre and copied artworks of artists like Van Dyck and Rembrandt. Her painting style was not quite Rococo, but not completely neoclassicist either. As her skill grew, so did the number of people who wanted her to paint their portraits and her commissions provided the financially strained family with much-needed money. At age 19, she became a member of the Painters Guild of the Académie de Saint-Luc. By 1776, Elizabeth had married Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun, an art dealer and artist. The marriage gave her even more access to art collections and the top tiers of French society. Though the marriage was good for her professional life, Jean-Baptiste Pierre wasn't a great husband, as he was prone to gambling off Elizabeth's money, among other misdeeds. The couple had a daughter named Jean-Julie Louise, whom Elizabeth loved. When Elizabeth was 23, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria commissioned Elizabeth to paint a portrait of her daughter, none other than Queen Marie Antoinette. Elizabeth was known for her ability to make her clients comfortable, and soon she and the queen became friends. Over a decade, she painted 30 portraits of Marie Antoinette. Thanks to her increasing popularity and relationship with the queen, Elizabeth was soon accepted as a member of the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture. When she was admitted at the age of 28 in 1783, she was one of just four women in the academy. Elizabeth was hosting social gatherings at her home, and she was painting so much it was literally making her sick. But even though her notoriety as an artist was growing, the French Revolution forced her to flee France in 1789. She moved with her daughter to Italy with little money to her name, 
then several other places in Europe, during which time she continued to paint portraits and landscapes. She had prestigious clients wherever she went, as her reputation preceded her. Elizabeth and her husband divorced in 1793, and she ended up settling in Russia for six years. While in Russia, her mother died, and her daughter married a man whom she wasn't particularly fond of. She went back to Paris after the revolution, but she wasn't really feeling the city's new vibe. But after a stint in London, Elizabeth ended up back in France, where she lived for the rest of her life. Sadly, her ex-husband, daughter, and brother died in her later years. But she never stopped making art. Throughout her lifetime, Elizabeth is estimated to have made more than 600 paintings. She was elected to art academies in 10 cities and found success in the arts despite being a largely self-taught woman. In 1835, she published the first volume of her memoirs. Elizabeth died in March of 1842. Though the first major international retrospective of her art wasn't held until more than 70 years after her death, Elizabeth is now known for her naturalistic and relaxed art style, sympathy with her sitters, and technical skill. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about Elizabeth, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called Elizabeth Louise Viget Levon. If you're so inclined, you can follow us at TDIHC Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history. Hello from the history closet, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to another episode of This Day in History class. Like so many of you, I am at home, but I am doing well, and I hope you're doing well too. And as always, the show goes on. The day was April 16th, 1853. The Great Indian Peninsula Railway opened the first commercial passenger train service in India. This service was not the first railway that operated in the country. The Red Hill Railroad, built in Madras in the mid-1830s, was the first railway in India. It was built for the carriage of minerals, and it was in operation by 1837. In May of 1845, the Madras Railway Company was established. In that same year, the East India Railway Company was also formed, but these railways were built to transport materials, not passengers. Throughout the beginning of the 1840s, British people promoted the idea of constructing railway lines in India. Roland McDonald Stevenson supported the creation of a line from Calcutta towards Delhi and Varanasi, and he published a text called Report Upon the Practicability and Advantages of the Introduction of Railways into British India. British civil engineer Charles Blacker Vignole submitted a report to the East India Company on the potential of constructing a railway network in India. The proposal had colonial designs, with an aim of facilitating trade and managing the country. In 1843, Governor General Lord Harding claimed that the railways would be beneficial to the, quote, commerce, government, and military control of the country. 
and Lord Dalhousie, who was the Governor General of India starting in 1848, advocated entrusting railway construction to private companies rather than let the government be in charge of constructing railways. On August 1st, 1849, the Great Indian Peninsula Railway, or the GIPR, was incorporated by an act of the British Parliament. A couple of weeks later, the East India Company entered into contracts with the East Indian Railway Company and the GIPR Company for the construction of experimental lines. The East India Company was a monopolistic trading company that eventually became involved in politics and extended Britain's imperial power in India. Per the old guarantee system, free land and a guaranteed 5% rate of return was provided to British companies willing to build railways. On April 16, 1853, the first commercial passenger train in India was inaugurated when the first section of the Great Indian Peninsula Railway opened. The train departed from Bori Bunder Station in present-day Mumbai that afternoon, headed for Tana. It had 14 railway carriages and 400 guests, and it was hauled by three locomotives. The trip was about 21 miles or 34 kilometers. The second section of the railway from Tana to Kalyan opened in 1854. That same year, the East Indian Railway Company opened a passenger service that ran from Howrah, which is near Calcutta, to Hooghly. From the 1850s onward, passenger railways in India were expanded. By 1880, around 9,000 miles of railway spanned across India. The railways allowed the British to transport goods and to deploy officials and military resources. Many people who constructed the railways died from the working conditions and diseases that hit camps. The railways were a major part of the colonial project, but the number of Indian passengers also increased over the years. Rail travel also highlighted caste divides in India. In 1900, the Indian government purchased the GIPR. Half a century later, the GIPR combined with other railways to form a zone of Indian railways called Central Railway. India's national rail network is the fourth longest in the world. The history of railways in India is intertwined with the British legacy of colonization, exploitation, and racism in the country. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have anything you'd like to tell us, you can send us a note on social media at podcast. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.